Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Trump agenda and the State of the Union. And Richard, you and I are recording this the day after President Trump's first official State of the Union speech. So I thought we could use this as an opportunity to talk about both what the president has done thus far and what, according to the speech, he's aiming to do going forward. And let me start with the economy. The president was, I think, fair to say, crowing in this speech about growth in the stock market, record low unemployment for blacks and Hispanics, and about bonuses being paid out in the wake of tax reform. And among some of his detractors on the left, you saw this, for instance, in the fact-checking piece that the New York Times ran after the speech. There are those who acknowledge many of the positive things happening in the country, but then say, you know what? A lot of this started under President Obama. Donald Trump inherited it, and while he might not have screwed it up, he certainly didn't create it. Richard, how much credit does this administration actually deserve for what we're seeing in the economy right now? I think it deserves a lot of the credit. Um, my view is I've always asked the question, can you think of a single Obama policy done at either the macro or the micro level uh, that was consciously aimed towards growth? And the answer to that question, I think, is surely no. Um, there are people on the New York Times who sort of think that a $15 minimum wage law is a growth operation because it switches wealth from employers to employees who will then spend it more. But of course, higher spending means less investment. And of course, the entire minimum wage Age essentially reduces overall levels of employment. If this is growth, we don't want any part of it. Um, so their particular schemes, I think, are misguided. If you look at the overall level of growth in that administration, it never hit 2% a year. Um, at this particular point, it has gone over that. It's probably closer to 3 now. But more importantly, I think that the corporate earnings on the one hand and stock market performance on the other are leading indicators. So I would expect a better year in 2018 by that growth measure than we have uh, today. It's also, if you start looking at what it was that that Trump did, it's not as though he's building on the Obama agenda. What he's doing is he's systematically dismantling it. In the column I wrote in Hoover, I just indicated the reversal that took place with respect to the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, where Obama used every dirty trick in the books in order to stop this thing from going online, and Trump essentially issued an executive order saying the ordinary processes will take over and we won't intervene. And as the Wall Street Journal reported, large tax revenues, large shipment of oils, expanded drilling, more secure supplies downstream. Uh, there's a really nice ripple or multiplier effect that comes from that. And if you start looking through the rest of the program, it's essentially been deregulatory. Uh, so I can't think of a single thing that Trump has done in this market, which would be essentially a continuation of the Obama program with only one exception. Obama's belief was that all international trade was wonderful when people invested in the United States, but not when people invested overseas. Trump is right to be proud of the fact that foreign companies are coming into this country, not because of his rhetoric, but because of the better business environment. But he should be equally supportive of American firms that decide that they want to invest overseas on the theory that if you run this thing reciprocally, it's going to be a much more stable environment in the long run. So I reject utterly the proposition that this is a continuation of what went before. My concern is that Obama will be more protectionist in the international market, where he ought to be more like he is in the domestic 
domestic market, low taxes and deregulation are the keys to success. To that point, so President Trump sounded this familiar note in the speech. He pledged to fix bad trade deals and negotiate new ones. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, people will know that you've been critical of the president on TPP and on NAFTA. But what about this slightly tougher case of, of China? On trade, that seems to be the area where the most conservatives are prepared to defend him on the grounds that China, for instance, coerces American companies into giving up intellectual property and that they more broadly don't necessarily engage in trade all the time as a positive sum game. Is there a case for treating them differently? Um, he's right about that. I mean, this is long dated, but essentially I've had clients who say to me, you know, we're prepared to take our technology to all sorts of other places because we know that when we share it under a confidentiality agreement, it's going to stay shared. But if we do this with the Chinese, they will be absolutely unscrupulous. What they will do is they take the information and funnel it off to local companies. Uh, since it's a trade secret, you won't know that they've done it. Uh, when the other guy makes his output, it'd be very hard to trace it back to this particular leak. That's why trade secrets are so difficult to follow. And so American companies are very cautious about this. And I think it has been in the trade literature a very serious issue for a long period of time of making sure that uh, espionage and intellectual property infringements of patents and the like don't take place. Now, what you do about it is, of course, the extremely difficult situation. Um, the better strategy is probably, and I'm cautious about this, what you do is you keep hammering them on this particular point to tell them point blank, American companies will not enter into joint ventures with you which require the use of their intellectual property if you continue to behave in this scandalous way. But if you start putting tariffs on unrelated Japanese, rather Chinese goods, the response is going to be, well, well now we're putting taxes on solar panels, uh, so they're going to tax or put a tariff on something that we make to them, and you could start a trade war. The correct thing to do with the solar panels is not to fiddle around with um, retaliation. It's to take away the subsidy from all domestic users of these things. Um, you don't back winners. If it turns out that uh, pollution from other sources are serious, what you do is you tax those, but that doesn't tell you which of the alternative technologies ought to be better, and so you don't subsidize any of those things. So essentially what he should do is forget about his um, tariff policy on that, forget about his tariff policy for washing machines of all things from South Korea, and concentrate further the program of deregulation, an essential component of which is removing subsidies for domestic injuries, industries. These things only are deserved in very, very rare cases where, for example, like with the subway system, you may ease congestion on the future if you build the thing underground. Uh, but the number of cases in industrial policy that involve those complicated trade-offs is very few, and almost none of them come up in the international segment. One of the areas that's expected to be a big priority of the president's in the coming year is infrastructure. And Richard, I'm reminded that when President Obama made infrastructure spending a component of his stimulus bill, there were a lot of people on the right who complained that it was wasteful spending and that it was inevitably politicized. Is there a good and productive way for the federal government to be involved in infrastructure spending? Well, there has to be. Look, infrastructure has been done by the states in the United States now for a very long time. One of the great achievements of the Eisenhower administration was 
putting into place in a relatively sensible fashion the entire system of interstate highways, the ones with those blue and and red signs. Uh, So it has been done successfully. But if you start looking at what happened under the Obama administration in 2009 when they passed the trade relief bill, the so-called ARA legislation, what they did is the first provision was we make sure that no collective bargaining agreement is going to be upset. If you want to be serious about infrastructure, you get rid of the Davis-Bacon Act, which talks about prevailing wages, and you don't enter into any sweetheart contracts with unions to whom you pay monopoly prices. The second thing is that when you try to figure out where you go, you don't do what Jerry Down does, which is build a railroad from here to there where neither place means anything, so that once you have the middle useless part, it makes sense for you to complete the thing by going from San Francisco to Los Angeles or wherever it might be. Uh, So there has been a complete decline in the way in which infrastructure has been done in the United States. Third element, I mean, I spend a lot of time with this, but there's something known as NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act from 1970, which essentially says whenever you build infrastructure, you have to go through endless hoops um, to make sure that every conceivable mishap is taken care of in advance instead of waiting until the project is in place and then tweaking as it goes on. That has got to stop. Um, If you go back to the famous illustration of Santa Monica and the earthquake, when that thing went down, everybody waived all of the environmental restrictions. They put up this highway in less than four months, although they thought it might take four years under the conventional situation. And what was the environmental impact? It was favorable because the moment you put up a good road, you have people using less of bad modes of transportation. And so if you switch that, you could also do it. So what you have to do on the infrastructure is not to deny its existence, but to make sure that all of the incrustations on that system that have been put place since the 1950s are removed. And that also includes, you know, we don't build bridges to nowhere. We don't build airports at the small town hamlet of our favorite congressman. What we try to do is to get this thing done more more rationally by independent people and put professionals in charge of the system. There's always going to be a leak into politics in these things. It's inevitable. But what used to be a trickle is now a deluge. And that's what it is that the Trump administration has to reverse. Does he want to do this? One cannot be sure. But that clearly has to be the way in which this goes. We've been talking primarily about the economic components of the president's agenda. The issue everyone is talking about right now, of course, is immigration. To what extent, if any, do the arguments that we're having right now around immigration bear on economic growth? Well, there has been at least some reports in the newspaper of a particularly loopy policy by the president, which is to say that when it comes to issuing these H-1 visas, which are designed to bring technical and professional people into the United States, we're not going to give them to those firms that decide to outsource some portion of their own business to foreign countries. I can't think of a dumber policy. Um, If you want to really believe in free trade and you want to put America first, as it were, what you have to do is to understand that American corporations that make investments overseas in labor and capital think that it's going to improve their bottom line. And the last thing you want to do is to penalize them by making sure that they can't keep their companies strong at home. And so what the president has to do on the immigration front, quite clearly, is to make sure that none of these things actually happen. Has to make sure, in the most emphatic terms, uh, that uh, what you do in free trade is you keep it open in both directions all the time. And the other thing that you have to worry about in immigration is a very difficult question, and that's the extent to which when you do this sort of stuff, do you want to treat this as immigration in order to prove the productive capacities of the United States, 
or do you want to do this in order to advance certain kinds of human values like bringing families together with chain immigration? Um, clearly, any sensible policy is going to have a little bit of both. But I think the people who say that we have to expand the number of H-1 visas, notwithstanding the fact that there's, quote, competition against domestic workers, why do we do that? Because they are not only competitors to domestic workers, but they're complements to domestic workers. Some of these people will define their own firms to take management position and create other jobs. We don't want to have it as if you get it, I lose it sort of mentality. On the other hand, if you take in huge extended families, that could easily be a heavy drain on the social welfare functions that we have in the United States. So uh, the proposal, I think, which the president would support is that if you are here, um, you could bring your spouse and your children in here, but you can't bring your great uncles in or your aunts or your cousins or your second relatives by marriage. And I think if you did those two things together, it would, in effect, change the balance. It's important to understand in any one of these situations, there are such powerful interests on both sides that you can't go to an all or nothing position on any of these issues. What you're trying to do is to make steady progress in the right direction, do it cautiously, but do it sensibly. And so if the president were to back off of his protectionism, it would improve immigration policy markedly. The last thing that I'll ask you, apart from mentioning the repeal of the individual mandate, the president didn't spend a whole lot of time in the speech on health care, but he did note that one of his administration's top priorities is, and I'm quoting him here, fixing the injustice of high drug prices. Richard, would you accept that formulation that high drug prices are an injustice? Oh, it's so sad to hear such an ignorant statement coming out of a politician whose otherwise instincts are pretty good. As we all know that the Trump is a mixture of populism on the one hand and deregulation for its own sake on the other. And this comes out of the populist side. Uh, what you really have to do is to fix the way the system runs, but it's not the high prices that do it. In some of these cases, the high prices are absolutely necessary because otherwise you can't cover the cost of producing these drugs, taking into account all the drugs that you try to produce but turn out to be failures. Uh, so what you need to do is to get a high rate of return on the oil wells or the drugs that come into production in order to offset the losses elsewhere. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to have major reforms in this area, which if you do it will change the price structures almost automatically. So one of his strong appointments is Scott Gottlieb, who heads the um, FDA, and he actually understands the importance of rapid approvals. And if you could, in effect, shorten the period of time uh, in order to get new drugs on the market, what that will do is increase the level of competition for the older drugs. It also turns out in the United States that we have now put all sorts of barriers against the use of generic drugs hitting the market. It's harder to do so than it used to be. And we have these peculiar set of rules that if a foreigner wants to sell a drug in the United States with foreign approval, they can't do it because the FDA will block them. Oftentimes, because you're selling a 12-milligram pill and we only have authorized a 10-milligram pill. And so you have to really improve that particular situation, and then you will start to see the prices go down. Uh, but there is nothing about the pharmaceutical market which says that heavy-handed government regulation will outperform standard market mechanisms. But it is an extremely difficult market to figure out how pricing ought to work. And let me just give a one crash minute explanation of why that's the case. In many industries, you say, ah, what competition does is it drives prices down to marginal costs so that people pay no more for the last unit 
of a good than it costs to produce it. But the difficulty is if you believe in marginal cost pricing for drugs, the first pill is going to cost you $2.3 billion, so you'll never sell the second one. Uh, So what companies have to do in a competitive market or a monopoly market is to backload some of the cost of the first pill onto subsequent pills. So the pills are essentially going to cost well over marginal cost. And if you prevent that from happening, it means that nobody will do any of the development again. Uh, So the nature of this particular game is that you're going to have high prices in this industry. The way you bring them down is not to avoid this fundamental problem, but to facilitate new entry, which essentially will put downward pressure. And the way in which you're going to get new entry is to reduce the cost of entry under the current system. And so what you really need here is a series of structural reforms. You don't need a homily coming from the president, which makes it appear that what he thinks ought to happen is, well, your price is X. I'm the just president. I'm knocking it down to 0.6X because I know that it's good. This is the last thing you want an administration to do. So it's the same story that I've always said about Trump. The man is taken strictly on an a la carte basis. Sometimes he says extremely wise things, perhaps for the wrong motives. Sometimes he says really silly things, perhaps out of good motives. But what he has to do is to get a much more consistent view of the way in which the world works so they will understand First, you want open markets. And secondly, you have to understand that as a president, you're not an expert on pricing of complicated goods and complicated markets. And that the thing which keeps this economy going is government indifference to prices in competitive markets, not government regulation and meddling and exhortation in those particular areas. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.